You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Psalm 122. If you want to take a moment to turn there with me, there are Bibles in your pews. I'll be reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Again, it's Psalm 122, and please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord, as the law requires of Israel. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for peace in Jerusalem. May we all love this city, may all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good evening, my name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to reiterate what Ben said about the caroling and clarify. He said, you know, we've made people cry. That's a, that'd be in a good way. Um, not in a, we've, uh, we've just insulted them. But, uh, but in all seriousness, and thinking through that, I, I, the, uh, I don't know how many of you visit your local neighborhood Facebook page. Uh, that's usually not a great place. And every year when we go, the West Salem Neighborhood Facebook page says, so thankful for the carolers. And that is uh, almost always a space where no one ever says anything like that. So uh, it's, it's worth it, uh, joining. Yeah, if uh, children are going to be staying in the service, y'all can come on up and grab a worship kit. Um, so we are in the season of Advent. Uh, And in Advent, we're going through the Psalms. Uh, To refresh your memory, the Psalms are a unique book in the Bible. They're full of people's words to God. Uh, They're very authentic. They're often emotional. They're expressions to God. Most of Scripture tells the story of God's movements with his people, towards his people. But the Psalms, they give us a glimpse of God's people moving toward him. Uh, or they're at least helping articulate how people are expressing themselves when they encounter God, when they search for him. Uh, Advent, if you don't know what that is, 
It, it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and it's a season of waiting. Historically, Advent is this time in, in the church for people to either discover or rediscover the longing within us for a Messiah. And Messiah is a word for someone anointed to redeem broken places and to rule over them. So, recapping those definitions, in Advent, we're looking for the Messiah in the Psalms. That's the series that we're going through. We started with Psalm 16 and the idea that the Messiah is safe. And then we read through Psalm 25 to see how we need a Messiah. And tonight, we're going to look at where can we find the Messiah. Psalm 122 is part of what's called the Psalms of Ascent. Each year, the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem at three different times, uh, each time for a different festival. And these Psalms of Ascent are prayers and songs that the people of Israel would pray and sing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. These festivals were worship acts. When they, when they came together, they were to remind God's people of their history with him and to encounter him together in that place. So by going to a specific place with this specific group of people, they're being intentional about encountering God. And it's kind of like how we do Christmas or Easter. It's a coming together to encounter God in the present and also remember what he's done in the past. Uh, some people call these pilgrim psalms, as N.T. Wright, a theologian, does when he writes, this is why the pilgrim song, songs or psalms are what they are. Jerusalem and the temple itself are not just a convenient gathering place. They're the place of promise, the place of presence, the place out of all the earth where the living God has chosen to live. And tonight... We'll explore whether places really are important to God. We're going to dig into whether it makes sense that God would be located somewhere specific if he's God. Uh, And we're going to look at how we today can find what David indicates in Jerusalem. uh, What Wright calls the place of promise, the palace of presence. Uh, This psalm raises two questions for me. What role do places play in God's redemptive plan? And how does Psalm 122 and Jerusalem relate to us today? So the first question, do places really matter in God's plan? Or to put it another way, isn't God only concerned with the spiritual, the ethereal? So do places really matter in God's plan? And the answer is absolutely. Places matter to God. Romans 8 says creation is cursed by humanity's sin against its will. Paul says creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Death and decay that they did not cause, that creation did not bring upon itself, I might add. The reason I connect Romans 8 to this psalm is that you have to believe that Christ's redemption is physical and material and terrestrial for a city to make sense as part of God's work. If we just believe that Christ's work was to come and die for our spirit to escape this world, 
then what would a bunch of people walking to Jerusalem a few times a year have anything to do with the Messiah, right? Why wouldn't the Messiah just teleport people's spirits away? Just whisk our souls away from this earthen plane. Some Christians do believe that um, explicitly or implicitly. But that's hard for me to reconcile with Romans 8, where I think that God's indicating that he's not going to leave this place. He wants to see it restored. This psalm seems to indicate that as well, because God's using a place on earth to encounter his people. And there's lots of other places in scripture that I think make the same message. Places, the material world, they don't need atonement like we do. Meaning the earth and all that is in it besides humans did not rebel against God. And therefore, they don't need to be reconciled to God in their rebellion. At times, Christians have made the mistake of saying that this world is now a waste because of the fall. This is wrong. Because Romans 8 says otherwise. But Christ did not come to sweep us away from our bodies and the created earth. For Psalm 122 to make sense, our theology would need to include the material world. Israel believes God loves places and does specific things in specific places. God loves places and they're part of his redemptive plan. David believed this. He's excited to go find God in a particular place. Look at verse one. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And then he says, here we are in the gates in verse two. Uh, Here's a question for you to ponder. What comes to mind when I say the word monastery or monk? I think for most people, you picture a cloistered community of quiet people, maybe closed off and inaccessible, possibly cold, stoic even. Monasteries can be full of quiet. Uh, There's a sense of seclusion, but they're also known as being spaces of hospitality. In verse three, when it says Jerusalem's walls are seamless and cannot be breached, It's meant to conjure a sense of safety, sanctuary, and inaccessibility, or not inaccessibility. Um, Monasteries are a great furthering of that idea, of this sensibility in Jerusalem, safety and sanctuary, not inaccessibility. There's a book that I loved when I was in seminary called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. And it's about how the Irish people built monasteries in the fifth century as places of hospitality and refuge. When the Roman Empire fell and, and uh, there was this enmeshment of the church and the empire, uh, that made the church just as vulnerable as the places that were falling within the empire. And the Irish did something unique. While they couldn't easily send missionaries out freely into Europe, they could be sanctuary for the exiled and the distressed, and even just the traveler. And so the Irish built monasteries as part of their mission. I think sometimes we think that the only way people find God is if people go out and tell them. But Psalm 122 shows us an additional way people encounter God, which is the way many people did through the Irish in the Middle Ages, by finding God in the refuges of his people. 
We can find God in specific places with specific people. Places have always been a part of God's plan. And here is a theory why. Places are specific. They're not indefinite or ethereal. The word location signals a particular place to be located, to be found, to be identified. Sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I wonder why God would have people come to the specific city of Jerusalem or build a very specific meeting place like the tabernacle. And I can be suspicious and wonder if this is just man-made myth with these towns and tents and tiny nations just a part of the fiction. Uh, Throughout the last few centuries, Western Enlightenment culture has been skeptical of faith, and it makes it easier to dismiss the story of Yahweh and Israel. On the other hand, very recently, I think more people today want to believe in God, more than I think we in the church often give enough credit to. And I believe that Psalm 122 speaks to that. The rigid secularism of the Enlightenment seems to be giving way to subjective spirituality. And you might be thinking, what what does that mean? (laughs) Well, so for the past few centuries, a rational atheism has become more appealing to people. People believed that we're enlightened, that we make rational choices, and that we're smart enough to soberly understand all of the world. I think I've mentioned this in a sermon before. I tried to go back and look and I couldn't find it. But on the Harvard crest for, the Har- for Harvard University, there's three books on the crest. And on the pages of the books, it spells out veritas. So it's veritas, okay? And originally, the bottom book was closed. And it said tas across the cover of the book. And it was this graphic signal that there's just some things that humans can never know. And then in the 19th century, that changed, and all three books were opened so that it's, it said veritas across the pages of open books. And Harvard was explicitly signaling that uh, we as humans can discover all truth, all things can be mastered and known. And I think when you couple that with the rise of air and space travel, the personal computer, the internet, advances in medicine, then it would make sense to not believe that God is real. If that's all your data, then it it might make sense to dismiss this pilgrimage to some old city as as just a myth, that you can't really encounter God in some place, or that God is even real. But I think recently we've actually become less sure of our ability to be as rational and objective as the Enlightenment thinkers would have argued. And so I think a lot of people are in tension. Uh, We see this because we see all this progress and it makes you wonder if faith is archaic, uh, if it's even nearing extinction. Because humans are so smart and so innovative. Um, And the conclusion becomes that, that we make smart decisions and we make progress without any spiritual realm. And I think the internet is at the center of that tension. On the one hand, we have this tool known as the internet and it leads to 
political revolutions and communication across continents, for innovation. We have this innovative colossus known as the internet. And you realize that humans are incredible. And then you read things on the internet. Like from the Associated Press last week. Police, colon, golfer bit off man's nose in argument over game. Or Reuters, don't cook chicken in NyQuil, FDA warns after TikTok challenge. Uh, National Public Radio, National Park Service wants humans to stop licking this toad. Those are all from the last six months. Those are all, that's news in the last six months. We have rocket ships in space. We have computers in our pockets. People are licking toads. People are cooking chicken and NyQuil enough that the federal government is getting involved. And it makes one less sure of anything including a confidence in rejecting God. So this helps me make sense of why God located himself in places, not because he has limits or that he's a fiction, but because he squeezes himself into places where we can encounter him, uh, locations where he can be located. The Israelites sojourned to Jerusalem because God wanted them to have a reason to encounter him. He could and can be found anywhere, but they were often so dislocated spiritually that they'd get lost and turn to idols, the fake gods of other nations, and just forget him. And that's not changed for us. That's why God is still specific in how he brings us into an encounter with him. How does Psalm 122 in Jerusalem relate to us today? I think in a few ways. First, If we believe in the God of David, the God of Israel, then it means that we can trust that he can be found, that he can be encountered, that he can be located. And in fact, he will tell us where to find him. I heard an interview with Katy Perry this summer. And I wonder how many of you are judging me right now. Katy Perry, famous pop star, grew up in the church. I think she's living in this tension of, I'm not quite willing to reject the idea of God, but I'm also not quite uh, impressed with Christianity because I'm looking at all this progress and I'm, I'm wondering, how do I live in this tension? I think her story exemplifies uh, people who are less willing to be confident as an atheist, but also hesitant to say that God is definitive or identifiable, locatable. Uh, She was asked whether she still believes, and her answer was that while she does not believe in the Christian view of God, she believes there could be a God. And she went on to explain the simulation hypothesis and, and how she finds that intriguing. If you don't know what that is, it's this theory that suspects that we're all living 
It's sort of a simulated video game-like reality with a deity either controlling our actions or manipulating our environment. And she finds that intriguing. And I find that really interesting that uh, she would throw that out as a legitimate hypothesis, uh, as a plausible view in a national interview um, but as far as I can tell, also in contrast to sort of the absurdity of, of what Christians would put out there. Um, I'm going to leave it up to you whether you want to flirt with the simulation hypothesis or rational atheism, for that matter. And setting aside the merits of each, I just want to name that I find either of those very lonely. And I think that they're a sad understanding of the universe. Because I believe there is a God, and I don't believe that he is distant. I believe that he's local, that he's searchable, that he's able to be encountered, uh, that he's personal. I'm so thankful that Laura prayed for us during that congregational prayer. Um, I just wrote when I was writing my sermon, I just wanted to ask the question to all of you, how's it going? Um, and I mean right now, uh, how is Advent going? I think mid-December is when things get really hard for people. You're a few weeks removed from either the rest or the tension of Thanksgiving. You can power through week one of Advent, maybe excited or maybe you're just running on reserves to survive. Uh, week two, you start to see Christmas in the distance, but end of year work things start to pile on, uh, holiday parties stack up. Maybe you're dreading Christmas too. Uh, either um, you're dreading being with difficult family or you're worried that you might spend it alone. I am very tired this week. And I bet a lot of you are really tired, too. Tonight we sang a song by a group called The Porter's Gate, and we sing songs by them a lot. And maybe you've wondered where that name comes from. And it comes from the monastic life that I was talking about earlier. Monasteries in the Middle Ages would have porters or, or luggage carriers standing and waiting for the tired, the weary, and the poor, the distressed, and when they saw a weary traveler on the horizon, the porters at the gate would run to take their bags so when they entered the gate, their refreshment could immediately begin. Another thing that monasteries have been known for is food. Uh, when I was in seminary, I worked as a specialty cheese expert. And what that means is that I cut and wrapped lots of cheese. And I learned that a lot of the best cheeses in the world are rooted in monasteries. Many of the types of cheeses that are the really decadent ones that you can get at Whole Foods, those are from monks tinkering patiently over years. And the same is actually true of beer, if you didn't know that. Monasteries are places with tall walls, right? And they have gates, just like it says Jerusalem did. But the walls are not to keep strangers out. They're actually to create a sense of sanctuary within. 
They're not wide open. They're distinct. They're finite. They're located. They're a place. They're a safe place. And in mid-Advent, I could really use a safe place, a safe sanctuary to find shelter. And I think all of us could probably use some help carrying our proverbial luggage. Uh, We can feel needy. I do. We can feel insecure. And it makes me long for the spiritual equivalent of a Trappist ale to warm my insides. In my casual, carefree headspace, I can wonder if God is real. I can even entertain whether I'm living in a simulation. But when I sit and I examine my soul in weariness, I'm convinced that I am in fact made to have my needs met, to feel safe. And if I'm made with those desires and expectations, they must come from somewhere. And I think they come from God. Not just the broad idea of some deity, but the God who is specific. The God who is findable, personal. The God who says, if you go to Jerusalem, you will encounter me. If you get amongst my people, you will find me. If you enter the gates, as it says in Psalm 122, you will be safe in the seamless walls of a well-built city. Was God telling the world in Psalm 122 to actually all go to the city that is called Jerusalem in Israel today? No. He's simply telling us, find my gate and enter. Don't wander. Move toward my invitation. Psalm 122 was fulfilled in Jesus. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Those who come through me will be saved. They will come and they will go freely and they will find good pastures. Enter his gates. Make pilgrimage there. In fact, you don't even need to make the journey alone. He meets you. Just as Ben said during the community update, He wants to take your heavy load. His his load is light. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. You don't even have to run to him. You can call out from the horizon. He'll run to you. He says that in the story of the prodigal son. He will carry your luggage to his gate. He will feed you at this table. Amen. Love these rascals.